we're in the middle of this series where we're looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, the letter of uh, the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And last time I spoke, we looked at the person of Jesus, focused in on three different pictures of him, aspects of who he is. Uh, we looked at Jesus, who is God, Jesus, who is uh, before all things, eternal, before and after, and Jesus, who is supreme over everything. He's the ultimate goal of everything that's been created. Basically, it's all about Jesus. At the start of this letter, if you've got a Bible, you might like to turn with me. Otherwise, the screen will show you the, the text as we go. We find Paul greeting the church. He tells us it's from Paul. And in Colossians 1 verse 2, he says this, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul repeats that phrase, in Christ, a number of times through the book. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, firstly, it means this is our status. This is our standing before God, God's holy people, because we're in Christ. In Paul's letter, another one of them, to the Philippian church, he talks about being found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, but a right standing with God through faith in Jesus. So being in Christ is a status, it's a place of incredible security. And followers of Christ Jesus are seen by God, who's perfectly holy, as perfectly holy. He doesn't see us as the sinful people that we are apart from Jesus because we are in Christ. Because Jesus is holy and we are in him, God looks at us, each of us, as though we are holy. So our identity has moved, if we've committed our lives to following Christ, from being a sinner to a saint, to rightfully and appropriately being addressed here as God's holy people, and that is because we're in Christ. So that's the believer's status, that's our identity, we are in Christ, and that two-letter word, that little word in, has a whole load of meaning whole, you know, just carries huge, huge meaning. To say I'm in means that you want to be part of whatever's going on. You want to share fully in that experience, you know, to fully identify with whatever it is. I'm in. So if there's a deal on the table and you say I'm in, it means I'm fully committing to this deal. If in the game of poker a player goes all in, they're putting everything they have into the game. They're investing all their chips into the outcome of that hand. They're fully committed. If we are in Christ, if we are fully committed to following him, sharing in his life, growing closer to him in relationship, yielding to doing his will, something happens to us. John Stott, who was perhaps the leading evangelical scholar of the 20th century, uh, his ministry spanned about 70 years, and at the end of that time, he was speaking. His last ever message was in Keswick, and he kind of distilled down this lifetime of fruitful ministry into one goal. This is what he said. God wants his people to become like Christ. He already sees us as holy people because we're in Christ, but his desire is that we would more and more grow into that identity, into being holy people, being like Christ as well. Last time we talked from the first chapter of this letter about Jesus 
being the image of the invisible God. All right, we can't see God, but Jesus showed us what he is like. He is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus, we talked about being God's selfie. He is God, Jesus is God as we can see him. He's God incarnate. You know what that word means? God incarnate, carnivore, meat. God in the flesh. God in human form. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read those first four books in the New Testament which recount what Jesus did, what he said, how, how he went about, how he handled situations and dealt with people. It revealed, those, those accounts, he revealed to us what God is like. Okay, let's just take this a step further. Jesus is no longer walking around the earth. His resurrected body is not here. He is right now at the right hand of his Father in heaven. So other than reading the Bible, how, how can we see God today? How can Jesus be visible today? How can we see him? How can people see him? In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Paul wrote, this is another of his letters, now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. Each follower across the entire globe, follower of Jesus, is part of the body of Christ. Jesus is still embodied, still walking around on the earth, but in another way. How is Jesus seen today? by looking at his followers. How is Jesus incarnate today? How is he in the flesh? Well, he's in the flesh in the lives of his followers. And God's intention is that each of us would become more and more like him. That as people look at us, they would see Jesus. Romans 8, 29, another of Paul's letters, he says this, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son conformed, shaped, molded to look just like Jesus. In his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. When I was at Bible college many years ago, uh, 29 years ago actually, a friend of mine did a little Bible study with a group of us and he gave us each a sheet of A4 paper paper. And on the front of the sheet were a number of frames, elaborate types of frames that you'd find in museums or whatever, with a picture of Jesus in them, painted by artists over the years and often with a bias towards their own time in history and their own actual ethnic origin. So there weren't many first century Palestinian Jewish people in, depicted there. But nevertheless, they were, they were artists' impressions of Jesus over the ages. And so if people want to look at Jesus, apart from reading the accounts, these are the visual images that people would see. And he was asking the question, how do people see Jesus today? And then he, turned, he asked us to turn our sheet over. And on the back of my sheet was a photo of me. And on the back of everybody else's sheet was a photo of them. What he'd done was take the large college photograph with all the people on it. He'd blown it up, cropped them all out, blown them up bigger, put them in a frame with a photograph of each individual as they turn that sheet over. And I found it absolutely profound. Never forgotten it to this day. Don't think I ever will. How do people see Jesus in the flesh today? By looking at you. Just as Jesus was the image of the invisible God, you and I 
are to be the image of Jesus, who is no longer visible to the naked eye. So the question is, if we're to be like Jesus, how do we get there? Now, this is a bit of an old program now, and it finished 10 years ago, so predates uh, perhaps some of your television viewing. But who remembers this on Saturday nights? Stars in their eyes. Now, people got on this show because they wanted to become like someone else. They actually wanted to imitate some famous showbiz personality, a famous singer. And Matthew Kelly would interview them, and we'd discover a bit about them, and he would ask, who are you going to be tonight? And their answer, scripted answer was, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be, and then they named the star that they were about to be, Elvis Presley or whoever. And then they would walk off the back of the stage, and given the magic of television, in about a second, through this cloud of dry ice, they walked back in onto the stage, the spitting image of whoever it was they were imitating to sing some song. And as much as we might like to click our fingers and say, well, tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be Jesus. I'm going to be just like, I'm going to look just like Jesus. I'm going to act just like Jesus. The process of becoming like Jesus is in practice a journey that will take us the rest of this earthly life, and then in a moment, we will be like him in the life to come. It's a joint project of ongoing transformation as we collaborate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The theme that we've been coming back to through the series is the way in is the way on. And essentially it means that the way we got into the journey is the way in which we continue it. All of us who follow Jesus came to a point we came to know him in a different way you know, from each other, but what is common for all of us is that at some point we heard about Jesus, we understood sufficient of the gospel to say, I'm in. Now the way on is to gradually share in Jesus' life so that his life becomes more prominent in ours. It's to continue our journey step by step, decision by decision, identifying ourselves more and more with Jesus. And so as we start today, I just want to encourage you to reflect on your own walk with Jesus and ask yourself this, am I more like Jesus today than I was a year ago? Just think about that. Are you standing still? Are you going backwards? Or are you actually being transformed? In a book I read recently by Pete Scazzaro, he recalls a member of his uh, congregation saying this, I was a Christian for 22 years. But instead of being a 22-year-old Christian, I was a one-year-old Christian 22 times. I just kept doing the same things over and over again. Not growing, not maturing, just going around in circles. Now, hopefully that won't be what you're feeling as you reflect, but I suspect that in some way all of us who follow Jesus could identify areas of our lives that have yet to be shaped into his image. Those parts of us which feel out of alignment, which Jesus uh, with Jesus, which we long to be in. So today I want to briefly look about at four ways that we can grow in our identity as people who are in Jesus. If we are in Christ, we identify with him in a few different ways. So firstly, we identify with Jesus in his death. Now this is a big one to start with. It uh, may not initially make much sense to you, but this is crucial. Jesus was crucified he died. He was buried. That's a historic fact. And Paul says, if we just turn over to chapter 2 and verse 20, 
you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. You died with Christ. About 12 years earlier, Paul wrote something similar in his letter to the Galatian church. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. A Christian is someone who has died with Jesus. It sounds pretty brutal. And some of you who are really new to faith might be thinking, wow, I hadn't realized I'd signed up to die. And some of you considering faith may be thinking, oh my goodness, I, I'm glad I was warned by this particular evangelist, you know, before I made the decision. No, no, it sounds very scary, but actually it's a very uh, amazing truth. To be a follower of Jesus means that we have experienced in ourselves a death, a break with our old way of life, a break what, with what used to master us, what used to dominate us. We've broken with our past. We've broken with our old way of doing things. But we didn't just leave it behind like yesterday's clothes left in a pile on the bedroom carpet. Paul's language is brutal. He talks about being crucified, killed. You're dead, he's saying, because he wants the new Christians to see that our old life can't just be picked up again like clothes left on the floor and put on again. The old life has died. Paul is saying that to be a Christian means the old me is dead and buried. It wasn't just Jesus who died on that cross because I'm intimately connected to him and I'm now in him. The mysterious reality, I admit, is that I'm right up there on the cross with him. I also died. Who I once was, I am no longer. Romans 3, 6 verse 3 says this, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In the first Gulf War, about 1991, the soldiers that went out to Iraq uh, were out there for quite some time. And in that time, you know, there's a saying, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Basically, many of these uh, soldiers were finding the imminent potential of death, and they were spending time there in the desert thinking about their own mortality and their own eternity and the padres were running around leading people to faith and then they had to baptize them and aside of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers if they weren't near those there was basically no water it's just desert and so what they did they had uh, they didn't have a birthing pool full of water like we do they had receptacles and no water those receptacles were coffins so what they apparently did is they would get a coffin put it on a table and then the soldiers would step in and the padre would lay the person right down in the coffin, signifying death to their old way of life. Now there's a world of difference between believing something and something and living like it's true. It's about like what happens when a person goes from being single to being married. There probably isn't almost any difference in the way that they look. You may spot a wedding ring on their finger, but uh, something dramatic has actually happened. Something has fundamentally changed. Something has changed fundamentally in their status and in their identity. It affects everything from that point on. At least it should do. A new husband may soon, soon realize that as a married man, he has less flexibility in terms of how much time he can spend playing Xbox or whatever it is that demands his time and his attention and his money. That kind of transition, when fully embraced, affects all of life. It affects the way you see yourself and the way you see and interact with others. When a couple takes their vows, from that moment, they are married. 
but it has to sink in. Married people are no longer single. The single life is over. It's gone. They are now married. And this is what Paul is saying. Consider your old life, your old status, to be dead. Our situation has fundamentally changed, and we need to adjust our thinking in light of that. We've left behind a life marked by all that old stuff, greed, selfish ambition, some of the habits, the things that we got up to. Our life is no longer colored by envy or shaped by the endless pursuit of impressing people. We've changed. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's all very well, John, but why do I still struggle with this habit? I'm trying to leave it behind, but it keeps following me around. Why can't I experience this death that you're talking about? The answer is that sin, that is pleasing ourselves, living our own way, in the way that we used to, sin didn't die. Sin is alive and well. And I certainly find that in my own life. I'm sure that if you've been following Jesus for more than 15 minutes, you will find that too. Sin didn't die. We died to sin. Paul highlights a way forward in his letter to the church in Rome, Romans 6.11. He says, count yourselves dead. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves is like a, an act of the will. It implies an active realigning of our position in our mind and our heart to fit with our new identity. And it takes courage day by day, choice by choice, to let it sink in. The great thing is we don't have to get there alone. The Holy Spirit, from the moment of our turning to Christ is at work in our lives to help us, to poke us and challenge us and draw us away from the temptations and the draw back to sin and the things that we used to do. Have you noticed, if you've been following the Lord for a while, feeling at odds with habits that used to be second nature to you? Some of you might drive a manual car, then you go somewhere, you rent a another, you know, an automatic, and you find yourself, as you're coming to a stop, pushing down the clutch as well as the brake, realizing then there is no clutch. So your habit is how to drive a manual, and yet you're now driving an automatic. It's a different thing. It's an old habit that's no longer relevant. Perhaps once it felt natural to you to lie, maybe tell the white lies, maybe more than that. Now it just feels wrong to you. Perhaps we used to swear a lot, and now we find that our language is changing. Perhaps our conscience doesn't allow us to be comfortable watching things on the TV which we once were really comfortable with. And we may feel still tempted to watch them. We may have a bit of a wrestle sometimes as we switch channels or we turn the television off, but we know that something has changed in us. Those old habits just don't sit well with us. They're no longer a part of the life that we live in the way that perhaps they once were. Perhaps we once sought to get revenge when someone hurt us, but now we find, you know, I think I could forgive that. We can walk free of it. Maybe our time, you know, we, we used to spend it all on ourselves and meeting our own needs. Now we find a motivation to meet other people's needs and to serve. Perhaps we were selfish. We didn't realize it. Now we just realize, well, I had no idea I could be this generous, but something has happened in my life. And uh, the reason why we begin to feel uncomfortable with those previous patterns of behavior is because the real us doesn't belong in this world with all that stuff. And the Holy Spirit will continually do that work of prodding us and challenging us. It's our job to follow his lead, trust him, 
and ask for God's help to walk out and live out our true identity. When we step into the new reality by faith, bit by bit, incredible transformation can happen. Uh, two weeks ago, we baptized 16 people here, people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus, and um, we heard from a number of them. I was struck by something that Mike said, and it was transcribed for me here. This is what he said. Being successful in my future career was very important to me. After a few months in my new job in London, I remember finding it really difficult. The intensity, fast-paced, competitive nature of London meant that seeing myself not as good as others was intensified and dented the area that I took my personal value from most. I remember this feeling of anxiety starting to creep in in my life. My thoughts increasingly became worrisome, negative, and harder and harder to control. When you give up your life for God, he said, that's when you truly find it. I was learning this and practiced this day to day that slowly took me out of my negative, destructive thought patterns and I started to see change and freedom in this identity. The importance I hold in my career success has been challenged as well as important relationships, but I'm trusting God and allowing him to change me. I'm now content. I know peace, love, and joy. I'm so excited and hopeful. Now, Mike's story and other stories of transformation are made possible because of what Jesus has done, what he accomplished on the cross. Jesus' death created in the most incredible way a better way for us to choose to live in step with him, to orientate our life around him and not us, to look ahead to the path that Jesus walks and declare, I'm in. Your way, your will be my way. A life where when we're tempted to sin, to do something that doesn't fit with who we are in Jesus, doesn't fit my new identity, we can say, my relationship with that thing has changed. I died. I died to it. I'm no longer available. And with God's help, we can increasingly find freedom from what once held us captive. And so for us, if we're in Christ, we identify with Jesus in his death. The great news is that we also get to identify with Jesus in his resurrection. This is Colossians 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God. When we were baptizing people two weeks ago, there were two physical things that we had to remember to do, the four of us who were baptizing folks. And one was to lower them completely under the water. In part, is it coming up on the screen? To symbolize their old self dying. Now, the other important thing was to raise them back up out of the water. Now, if we forgot to do that, we would clearly be in a lot of trouble, but we would also miss, miss out a vital part of the symbolism that we find in baptism. The amazing thing is that we don't just die to our old way of life. We're also raised to a new life. We're no longer defined by the old way of doing things because we now have a new life, a new freedom, forgiveness, a life of uh, peace, and a life of supernatural power. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul writes this, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. That was the text that was up during worship. A new life, a supernatural life, life on a whole new level. 
I imagine most of you will remember the original Matrix film starring the computer hacker Neo, the initially reluctant hero and savior, the one. And the movie describes him as one who was born inside the system, who had the ability to change what he wanted and remake the Matrix as he saw fit. Neo broke the system from inside it. He could bend the rules. He could break them. He could free people who were stuck in the system. He opened up a world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries, a world where anything is possible. Interesting parallel. That's what Jesus did. He entered our world and started a revolution. And we can share in that kind of life with Jesus. And we don't just need to wait until we get to heaven for all that to kick in. When Jesus rose from the dead, he released to us a down payment of the future age, the future life in heaven. Romans 8, 11 says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. If the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who has power over death, is living in us, then we can see things which reflect our supernatural God. We, we may get to see miracles. We may get to see, you know, through our own faith, our own prayers, we may see the supernatural breaking in. Jess, one of our leaders, told me a story on Monday evening, not realizing I would say, would you mind telling another couple of hundred people a few minutes later that same story? And essentially, this is what she said. She recently started a job, and uh, her boss came in one day, clearly in a lot of pain, just absolutely um, couldn't lift her arms, and she was unable to straighten up. And so Jess was sitting there at her desk, and she saw her boss pick up the phone and call the doctor to get an emergency appointment. Couldn't get an appointment. So she then called her chiropractor and again couldn't get an appointment. And Jess is sitting there. She's got her headphones in, working away, and she's like, heart thumping. I know, Lord, you're prompting me. I've got to actually offer to pray for this lady because it doesn't look like anyone else is available to her. And uh, she suddenly just got up and she just stepped into the middle of this office and just said, I'm going to pray for you. And the woman was very receptive, and so she, she did. And uh, she was in a lot of pain. She asked her what she was unable to do. She couldn't raise her arms, apparently past her waist. Pain was right off the scale. And she prayed for her, and uh, immediately this woman's hands came up, and she burst into tears. And she's like, something's happening. And uh, she asked about the pain. It was reducing, but it's still significantly there. And so she prayed again, and this woman stood up, and she said she could feel something happening. And then Jess prayed again, and suddenly this woman dropped into a squat. And then she ran up the stairs and back down again, crying with joy. And Jess was crying as well, feeling so happy. She, she was amazed. Jess was more amazed. They were both stunned by what had just happened. But apparently, it seems this woman, all her discomfort, all her pain was completely gone. Praise God. This power that's at work within us by the Spirit helps us as we talked about earlier, say no to the old patterns and things that used to control us. And it gives us the power to say yes to everything that God has for us, including seeing God's supernatural power at work with us. Sharing in Jesus' risen life doesn't mean that every time we pray, we'll see healing, that we'll see breakthrough. Yes, we have a down payment of the future life, but we don't have the full payment yet. But we can experience more and more of what it means to live a new kind of life. 
Now, the last two points are really short. Thirdly, we identify with Jesus in hiddenness. In Colossians 3 and verse 3, it says this, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? Well, what this verse isn't saying is that our faith in Jesus should be hidden, that it should be so concealed that the outside world hasn't got a clue, like an undercover agent. And sadly, that is the case for some people who describe themselves as a Christian, but their faith is so well buried and hidden that others aren't even aware of it. Now, this verse clearly isn't saying that because living a life that is a reflection of the power of Jesus' death and resurrection is bound to have some visible consequences. That phrase, hidden in Christ, has more to do with this. Our new life, our true life, is a resurrected life. The glorious eternal life, which is being given to us, is hidden. It's hidden for now. And in many ways, it's hidden from us. And it's hidden from others. They don't see the glorious reality of it. I mean, you and I, probably most of us, kind of bumble along day to day, not realizing this incredible life that we have been raised to. The message version says this, your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. We have this dual identity going on. We, we exist here you know, in our physical bodies. We're alive physically, but just as we were once born physically, we are now born spiritually. We're born again to a new kind of life. We're spiritually alive, eternally alive from that moment on. Our life in Christ is the one that's most important, that's the real thing, that is eternal. What, what we do here now, just for these 70-odd you know, years, is far secondary to that new life that we've come into. If we fully grasp that our real, that our real life is hidden with Jesus in God, then we have a security, we have a confidence, both of who we are now and what is to come. The more we find our security in the life to come, the less we need to find it here. The more we focus our thoughts there, the less we need to have them focused on the here and now. The more that heaven becomes our focus, the focus of our lives and our energy and our passion, the less concerned we become about what is around us. It gives us a freedom to live life here kind of hold it loosely and, and live. I just read a thing today, I think I re-Facebooked it or whatever, just awful about 11 Christian missionaries being crucified and beheaded in uh, Syria. Those people who were given the opportunity, do you want to renounce Christ and you can go? No, because they were focused on the real, true life that they had come into. Jim Elliot was a missionary to the unreached Orca Indians 60 years ago. And he, along with a few friends, spent several years learning the language of this tribe and trying to find a way to communicate with them. And then they arrived together, four of them, and as they encountered these tribes people, they were all slaughtered. You think, what a waste, incredible loss. After all that investment and their lives were simply taken. But the story, and I'd encourage you to read it, Jim Elliot, which unfolded from that point, from that setback, was absolutely stunning, amazing. Vast numbers of people came to faith through the seeds that were sown in their martyrdom. Now, in his journal, seven years before he died, Jim had written something which revealed his grasp that this life is not his real life. This is what he wrote. He is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot was someone who understood what it meant to go all in, as poker players do who bet everything they've got on one hand, to tether all of ourselves, both our present reality and our future destiny, to him. Jim knew that his life was really secure. It was hidden with Jesus in God. And if we, like Jim, know that our our confidence and our security is in Jesus, then the things of this earth become so much less important to us. So as we come into towards a close today, I think it's worth reflecting just on Jim Elliott's example and asking ourselves if we're in that place, are we really all in with Jesus or are we still holding back? When we first came to Jesus, Jesus, we, we chose as best we could to surrender our life to him. But as life goes on, many of us face the temptation to kind of hedge our bets, align some parts of our life with who we are in God, hold back maybe in some other areas. And perhaps there's an area in your life that the Lord is drawing your attention to even right now. It feels risky to trust God with our whole hand, with every aspect of our lives, because we can't physically see that life. It's, it's hidden. But it won't always be that way. Paul gives us a glimpse of how of the way that will unfurl and of our future shared destiny. One day that hiddenness will be gone. One day it will be fully revealed when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, we will appear with Jesus on his return. It says here in chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. One day what is hidden now will be revealed. Jesus will return to the earth. Everyone will see him as he is. And we also will, will be revealed. The Bible says that creation waits in eager expectation for that day when we will be known fully and revealed for who we really are. One day we shall see Jesus face to face and we'll see each other as we really are in Christ. We will share together our full destiny to be fully in Jesus and to be like him. The journey of being conformed to the likeness of Christ will culminate in that moment. As John writes in 1 John 3 verse 2, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a secure and wonderful future to look forward to.